Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hey Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, Kirk. Having a good week. Yeah, what does a good what constitutes a good week for you? Well, this week in particular, I've had a chance to spend a little bit more time with my kids they're here all day now because school has been cyber i don't know i don't know how we call it school has been non-existent uh mostly but uh, it's been hard to to balance uh parenting and 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 working and uh amen man because i'm accustomed to uh weekends Obviously, I work. Uh, I'm a I'm a priest, so Sunday mornings and and Saturdays there there's some prep required, but uh, it's very clear when I'm on and when I'm off as a parent, and uh, when with them here 24 hours a day, uh, it's been it's been very difficult. So uh, I've just consciously set aside more time this week to to spend with them, and that's been good. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've finally had uh, some truly sunny days. Um, here in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, by the way, did you see uh, did you see the uh, the article that was kind of shared around social media um, by some people you and I both know? Uh, he's I think a Pittsburgh expat who's now moved to DC, and um, it was uh, USA Today I think uh, measured the, the the least sunny cities, the most sun deprived cities. And did you see at the top of the list? Was it Pittsburgh? It was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Uh, I think I think we have uh, 77 sunny days, um, which is just insane. <laughs> That's just insane. Yeah, I remember kind of uh, – I'd never seen kind of scientific uh, – there had always been kind of folk uh, wisdom shared about how, you know, it's, it's cloudier there than, than Seattle. And I'd heard uh, – so Columbus is, is pretty similar, Columbus, Ohio. Yes. And I'd it heard people say that uh, some key – some strategic military thing was built near Youngstown because they had all this cloud cover and the Soviet satellites would never be able to see it because it's always cloudy. And, yeah, I, and, and, and of course, Youngstown is, is very near Pittsburgh for anyone who isn't familiar with Western Pennsylvania geography. Yeah. So um, there's, there's this uh, disproportionate elation that um, you know, ripples through <laughs> the community. When we have consecutive days of sun, um, it's it's really something, and and you can see like children's bodies respond to it. Um, so it's been great. We've been spending a, a lot of time outside. Uh, do you remember the the turtle sandbox that we've had set up in the backyard forever? Yes. And I say sandbox in scare quotes, uh, dear listener. You can't see it, but I, I have very eye rollish, sarcastic scare quotes around sandbox. Do you remember that, Christopher? Yes. 
It was under the treehouse. Okay, so um, it several, uh, I don't know, five years ago, maybe more, less, something, um, through several consecutive rainy days, uh, some child had left the cover off, and so it just turned to sludge. And uh, <laughs> I, got, I got lazy, and um, perhaps I went mowing the lawn one day, let a bunch of grass blow into it. And anyhow, it's been sitting there as this uh, kind of toxic post-industrial mystery <laughs> pond um kind of open bare to the sky collecting for how long uh, probably five years i'm guessing <laughs> <laughs> and uh and 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 this week um perhaps uh, in, inspired by by this mysterious fireball in the sky i decided i want to make a proper sandbox for daphne so i so i so i put on my hazmat suit <laughs> i didn't I, I dumped it out and uh and uh kim kim scrubbed it she's she's our our dutiful when something really needs to be deep cleaned she's the one who does it and i took the kids uh to home depot um uh, masked up uh we, we we did it did it properly we're not we're not kind of um making making statements yet um <laughs> and uh and we we picked up sand uh and we came back and we made we made the, we made the sandbox and uh daphne loved it for about 37 minutes and since then, it's been the boys that have been playing it. Mm. <laughs> um, and even uh, my 12-year-old son, uh, his first inclination, this is, by the way, proof that um, you can't really trust a young man with anything until like the age of like 33 <laughs> or something. The, uh, within 15 minutes, he had massive, complex $150 Lego sets in the sandbox. Oh, no. <laughs> um and so I'm like, whoa, 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 okay, this is not, this is not what we're doing. Um, but uh, you know, Daphne's been loving the sandbox. That was great. Um, our we, neighbors we, have, we, uh, have a trampoline. We dabbled, uh, Kirk. We dabbled just a that? little bit with a sandbox, and yeah. within minutes of setting it up, we were like, "This is a terrible idea. It is so messy." <laughs> None yeah. of the sand stays in the sandbox. You know, my concern had been it coming indoors, but in fact. Um, the problem was more just on the concrete around the sandbox in the grass. You know, it doesn't kind of settle down to the soil quite like it ought to. And right. uh, it was it was that was a short stage at our house. But go on trampoline. <laughs> and I can I can picture um, with Isaac's uh, particularly creative, <laughs> destructive form of play, <laughs> like um, a trip, a trip to the uh, quick trip to the clinic, uh, the emergency room, because uh, um his sister had sand lodged in some strange place sure. as she's screaming, Isaac, I told you not to throw the sand at me or whatever. But... <sighs> yeah. You know, all too well, the dynamic in our house. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, our, we have, we have neighbors who have a trampoline and, uh, and um, we've, we've been trying to, so kind of everyone's sort of informally opened up and the media has kind of been trying to make sense of that. And we've been trying to be responsible as well. Um, while still acknowledging reality, which is, you know, we're having 70 degree days with sun and kids want to be outside and you've got the whole neighborhood gang and they kind of want to see each other. Um, so we kind of have um, a couple kids on the trampoline at once, um, not, you know, four kids or five kids or whatever. And when Daphne's on there, she's the only one on there. And Daphne was on the trampoline, neighbor trampoline. And I was I was in here working in in our home working, and suddenly I can hear through I had the windows I did I have them open closed anyhow I could hear from a hundred yards away suddenly uh, a blood curdling scream and you know your children's different 
mm -hmm. um, grades of screams. And this isn't like my brother's stupid and I want him to go away scream. This was, I'm really hurt. And so uh, she made it to the door and uh, ultimately it was explained to me that um, she had fall, hit her foot while she fell off the trampoline. And so, you know, we, we set her up on the couch with a blanket and an ice pack on her foot and a Disney movie. And we thought she'll be fine because kids are made out of rubber and yeah. she's our fourth child. And we, you know, you become increasingly blase about things as you have more children. Um, uh, so that was Tuesday. And then, and then Wednesday, she, she was doing this. I can only say like a Daniel day Lewis in my left foot in the movie, my left foot kind of like scooching around thing. It was weird. She would, uh, she refused to walk, absolutely refused to walk. And she wasn't really crawling, but she would kind of like stick one foot out to the sky, the side and kind of pull herself around with her, with her hands. And she could, she could get up on the, on, on the toilet. She could get off the toilet. Uh, she would, she would even like crawl in and out of the house. Um, crawl, like not crawling, like scooch out to her, her tricycle and ride around the tricycle. So she can put like that kind of pressure on her foot. We have no idea what's going on here, but she woke up again this morning and she's doing the same thing. Um, so it's just very, very strange. Um, uh, we, if this persists, we may, may have to take her in. It's just hard to measure her health right now until, unless we take her in. Speaking of measuring, what was in your son Isaac's hand in the uh, last day of school, the ceremonial last day of school photograph that you shared with us? Yeah, yesterday was the last day of school for our kids, uh, and and that should go in square quotes because Isaac's been done with school pretty much for the last hour, hour um, for the last. I'm sorry, Isaac's talking to me. Uh, he's been done with school for the last month, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, but. He, he just takes to certain objects and he just decided like he would not put down the measuring tape. Uh, he just measures everything. And so for this photo, he decided to pose with the measuring tape. And that's not all, <laughs> Kirk. That's not all. Not only did he, does he walk, walk around constantly with the measuring tape measuring things and, and pose for photos with it. Uh, several nights last week, he went to bed with a level. <laughs> we had used the level for some projects we were hanging some some pictures and uh putting together a desk which i'm sitting at uh, this wonderful new desk in, in in our basement so i can have a home workspace and yeah uh, he just became very enamored of this level and uh be he became inseparable with it hey Yeah, I mean, level is an important tool, so I uh, completely get his uh, devotion to it. Um, if you don't properly level a project, it'll uh, it'll present issues um, build, later build on. Build your house on the rock. That absolutely, man. So I, I I get I get that intuition. I love it. I love it. So uh, what's the what's the next implement he'll be bringing to bed? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, chainsaw. Chainsaw. <laughs> drill. <laughs> power washer. I don't know. That's fantastic. That's so good. Yeah. Um, so your kids are done with school. My kids will be done here in a couple of weeks. And then, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm a teacher. I teach history and I'm, we're, we're going well into June because our district was, was late in adapting and, and kind of developing a, a virtual program. So 
So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna continue. I'm gonna persist. Yeah. So that's where that's that's where we are, man. That's where we are. All right. Shall we uh, shall we take a look at the gospel reading for today? Let's. Today, we're recording on Thursday, which is actually uh, the Feast of the Ascension. And um, almost always in liturgical historical churches, um, the, the, lessons, uh, and the, the lessons for Ascension and the celebration of Ascension are translated from Thursday to the following Sunday. Um, uh, and uh, is that, are, are you folks doing that at your church at Resurrection Yes, yes we are. Yeah, and I'll say yeah. more. Um, once we re read the gospel, just just about, yeah. like what why it's worth translating. But you know, in the historical church, we uh, and, and to this day, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church, this is a a day of, of obligation. So uh, what that means is is um, you are obligated if you are at all able to attend church on 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 this day on on a Thursday which for many evangelicals or protestants would be strange to go on a weekday that's not maybe holy week or or christmas eve but uh yeah there are all sorts of holy days that are during weekdays that that has kind of fallen out of favor to actually meet um as the church on those days and and so on on some of those occasions we translate those to sunday the, the, now the tricky one that that uh that is harder to translate is the epiphany january 6th uh, because the the Sunday after Epiphany is the baptism of our Lord, which is a big holy day, and and right. you know you, uh, that's kind of a bit of a a bit of a uh, of a conflict to 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 not recognize both. So so the Epiphany can be you know I've had this uh, I've asked this is a a question I like to ask when I have uh, um, Anglican clergy around is um, I like to ask if you had one uh, one midweek feast day that you could kind of really build into your church's dna what would it be and uh, and most do say epiphany I, I think uh largely for the reason that you just said is you end up having to make a bad choice between either picking baptism of our lord or or picking um epiphany um it, it's interesting uh, the uh the renewal of uh of focus on um uh Midweek festivals and wherever feast days fall in the week, according to the church calendar, um, really uh, encouraging churches to celebrate those things uh, within the Anglican Communion. Um, that happened in the 19th century in the Oxford Movement. And, uh, and, and I read a, read a book one time that looked at um, some parish, parish data from uh, St. Mary's Church, Oxford, which is the parish church in Oxford. Uh, John Henry Newman was uh, vicar there um, in the 1830s. And... Uh, and even at the beating heart of the of the Oxford movement, uh, 
you would get single digit attendance. <laughs> mm. So if we think that there was ever a golden period where um, we had Anglo-Catholic parishes that were celebrating these these feast days and people were showing up, they weren't. <laughs> so well, okay, let's let's just okay. continue a little bit with this before we get to the actual reading, then, uh, because we have. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine principal feasts uh, in in Anglicanism, uh, and those would be. Uh, oh, ooh, should we quiz you, Kirk? Can you name them? Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, let me start at the beginning of the church year. Okay, so. Well, I guess I guess that's 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 a church that's a Church of England. Um, it, it you know Episcopal Church. Uh, sure. One, two, three, four. But like, let's just say if you were to name all okay. nine in in England, Church of England. Okay, so so I'm, if we're saying nine principal feasts, then these would okay. So let me let me stop hemming and hawing. Let me just try. Yeah. Uh, um, Christmas, mm-hmm. um, or Feast of the Incarnation, or whatever it would be called. Uh, Epiphany. Mm-hmm. Um, baptism of our Lord. Baptism of our Lord is not one in the Church of England. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, dedication of Mary or candle mass. Yeah, no? so pre- presentation of Christ, yes, candle. Presentation of our Lord. Okay. Yep. All right. So that's two. That's three. That's three. Um, Easter. The, nope. The next one had to do I with skipped. Mary. So Hold you on. kind of you skipped one dealing with Mary. Oh, um, Assumption. Not mm, Assumption. Assumption. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Uh, uh, it's a March. What March twenty fifth? What's the name of the? It's March twenty fifth. What is it? Because it often falls during Holy Week and gets translated. The the Annunciation. The Annunciation, or, which oh is a fancy God. word for announcement, right? The Annunciation right, right. of our Lord to the Blessed Virgin yep. Mary. So nine months before Christmas Day, um, yep. Gab- Gabriel came to her and said, "You're gonna you're gonna bear yep. the Christ." Yes. Yeah, and that's easy to remember that day because it is nine months, right? Nine yeah, months to the day of yeah. conception. Okay, so uh, that's four. Uh, five is five is Easter. Mm-hmm. No. Yes, Easter yep, five. Yep. yep. Um, Ascension is six. Yep. Pentecost seven. Yep. And then two more. Two more. Oh, I'm gonna strike. Oh, no, no, no. No. Uh, number number eight's kind of tricky. Comes pretty soon after Pentecost, and uh, it's Trinity Sunday. Oh, okay. That that's a principal feast. Okay. In, in I love it. England, I love Trinity yeah, Sunday. Yeah. Is eight, and then would Transfiguration be nine? All Saints Day. Come on, Kirk. Okay, all Saints. Oh my God. Kirk attends All Saints Anglican Church. That's your feast day. That's our feast day. And I should probably know what the principal feasts are in the ACNA, but um, no one asked. Uh, Let's see. Principal feasts Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, Trinity, Christmas, Epiphany, All Saints Day. Um, So, interesting commentary on this. Easter, of course, is always Sunday. Pentecost is always Sunday. Trinity Sunday, always Sunday. Trinity Sunday is the Sunday after Pentecost. Um, and then uh, Epiphany is sometimes Sunday. Christmas Day, sometimes Sunday. Ascension Day, never Sunday. All right. Saints Day, some days, um, so, some years is, is a Sunday. So uh, interesting that there are a number um, – of course, Ascension is never Sunday because it is 40 days after Easter that Christ ascended. That he walked the earth for 40 days before he ascended. Right. So it's always so, on a Thursday. Yeah. And, and and so it's interesting that among these these principal feasts that um, I would say that All Saints and Ascension 
And Epiphany, these ones that don't land on Sunday have kind of fallen uh, behind uh, doctrinally in practice. And of course, uh, we celebrate the incarnation, so the birth of Jesus. We celebrate his, his resurrection. Um, we, we commemorate his death on, on Good Friday. But we kind of, un- we, we kind of, we underappreciate his ascension. And, and we'll get to that when we comment yes, on the scripture. I think but- you and I probably both have thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. So should we read the scripture now? Let's let's do it. Do you have it up? I, I do have it up. Now, we actually have a choice in year A between the Mark and the Luke reading. Is it okay if I read the Luke? I was hoping you would. Yeah. And this is Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 53. And if you hear background noise, it's because my son Isaac is in the background. He he was up uh, he was up very early today and he's a little bit he's a little bit wild. So just give him a tape measure and he'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Here ends the reading. So I will offer a commentary first, even though I have some background noise of Isaac putting things together and, and treating them as instruments. So you'll you'll hear all sorts of delightful um odd odd soundings uh, sounds of him going oh you know through through these tubes Isaac. the listeners will love it listeners i hope so it is interesting to me how how many of us not many of us but i was reading one of our favorite theologians michael horton and how he agrees about how the ascension is is definitely neglected in in and how you know the incarnation the death, uh, the resurrection of, of Christ are all observed, and and yet the ascension has has fallen away because this ascension uh, is this new era in in human history, and I just recently listened to a Tim Keller sermon that was really really good, and he he talked about he likened he had this great sermon illustration of of how this is like the detonator, uh, like if if you are uh, g- going to blast through this rock with this dynamite uh, to build a tunnel or something, and you as- assemble all this dynamite and put it in the right place, but but don't put the detonator in. It's not very useful, is it? Um, and th- the ascension is the detonator for all these things that Jesus did for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. All those things are made efficacious for us because of his ascension. Like this is the detonator that, um, uh, and you know how uh, Tim Keller he. He likes to kind of have a three-point sermon, um, so he'll like explain things: the power, the nature, and the meaning of of uh, the, the ascension. And uh, the the power um, of the ascension. Uh, he he looks at he looked at the reading from Acts, and it's interesting the, uh, that uh, Luke has two different accounts of the ascension: one at the end of Luke and one at the beginning of Acts. 
and uh, that that the disciples still didn't really get it. That they were standing there, kind of looking into the sky, uh, kind of forlornly. And, and these angels kind of softly chide them, saying, "What are you, what are you doing, looking up into heaven?" Um, if and the implication is, if you knew what this ascension meant for you, um, you would not be staring forlornly you would be and so in fact it's interesting that th- th- this account in luke has them um going to the temple and, and blessing the lord and and worshiping and um that um this is not the abs the ascension is not the absence of christ that is the increased presence of christ the infinite magnification of jesus and and this all comes from the ascension even in the, in the english language has kind of a double meaning it means it means directionally, right, to go up. But also, mm-hmm. uh, he had this other great ana- uh, sermon illustration that the that somewhere there's there's a throne in England, right? And you or I, if we were able to get through security, we could quote unquote ascend to it. We could walk up to it. But oh, interesting. Th- but to go up is only one part of the ascension. Um, another, the, the second part of the ascension is the change in in relationship, right? That you or I could walk up to the throne, but it would not change our relationship to the people of England. That would not make them our subjects. Um, but the ascension of Jesus isn't just him going literally up into the air, but him being changed um, in his relationship to the whole universe. That he is, uh, it's not that he went up to go live up in space. Um, it's that he changed his relationship to the whole universe. He's no longer bound by space and time. So you remember in our Easter text how Mary clung to him, right? And he said, don't cling to me yet, for for I have no, not yet ascended. And that could be kind of mysterious to us. And I kind of point out two meanings, the, the one that I'm going to discuss now, but then also kind of a missional meaning, like, hey, like the world has changed due to due to the resurrection. Like, go tell some, somebody. There's a missional aspect. but But there's also just like, um, you don't need to cling to me anymore because when I ascend, I will never be apart from you. I'm not bound by space and time. I don't need to be next to you to be with you. And uh, so that's that's a beautiful thought. But also the meaning. Keller went into uh, kind of uh, – it's, it's different parts of the Bible. For instance, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the first, first verse of Acts. Of, of Acts, uh, Luke writes to the- Theophilus, he says, in the first book, you know, that's the gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Meaning that Christ, in his ascension, um, when we preach Christ, it is not just us preaching. That it mm. is the word of Christ that people hear. And and translators are un- uncomfortable with this, uh, that they insert prepositions uh, they do that twice in Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Paul wrote, uh, he said, that's not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught. And then uh, the the translators are uncomfortable with this, uh, with this idea of Jesus teaching them. Um, so they insert taught, you know, in, in him, um, by, you know, uh, but, but uh, you, were, you were taught, like Jesus taught you, is is what the literal uh, translation of the Greek is, and uh, again in, in earlier in, in Ephesians two seventeen it says Jesus preached the word to you. It doesn't say I did. It says Jesus did. Now Jesus never went to Ephesus. 
But when we proclaim Jesus, they hear Jesus. And uh, and again, I'm I'm stealing all of this from Tim Keller because I just it's so good um, that Jesus in the book of John, he says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. <laughs> and why is this? Is that because you and I are eloquent, charismatic? No, it's because when we preach, it's that they we preach and they hear Christ's word. That the weakest Christian is a better prophet than John the Baptist, not by dint of our own abilities, but because of his ascension. And we point, like we look at at the fact that this this uh, is a global church that we have, despite being run, uh, not just the authorities in the church, but the the lay people. Like we're idiots sometimes, we're idiots oftentimes, and in spite of our idiocy, the gates of hell have not proclaimed, uh, have not, I'm sorry, prevailed against the church. So, uh, again, that's Hawking, uh, Tim Keller, uh, this, this great preacher in, in New York City who's now retired and kind of moved on to other things in his life. Uh, but, but again, he likes to get into those three parts, the, the power, the meaning, the power, uh, and oh, what was the third one? The, um, the, the, the power, the nature, and, and the meaning. And uh, so th- those are the things that really jumped out at uh, to me, I'm really grateful that this week, uh, we, our church, uh, we're not a large church, but we are blessed by having a number of very gifted preachers. And this Sunday, I have the luxury of, of sitting and listening to Paul Rainbow, uh, Dr. Paul Rainbow, uh, with his Oxford PhD. Uh, I'm very excited to hear him preach on the Ascension. So, so maybe I'll have some follow-up thoughts next week. Maybe next week will be a whole... Hey, here's what I learned from from this wonderful <laughs> New Testament professor. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, is this a professor from uh, Sioux Falls Seminary? Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, what classes did you take from him? New Testament. So, Intro to New Testament, Romans, and and Greek. The third semester of Greek. What do we call that? Okay. So you had yeah. uh, you had. Uh, many classes, chance to establish your relationship. So that's that's really neat. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in our household, um, the celebration of the ascension and discussions around the ascension are colored by um, a corny nineteen eighty eight uh, children's DVD called "He Is Risen." And I, and I actually think it might be um, might have been by a Mormon publishing house and four Mormons um, because it's uh, the the script was actually written by Orson Scott Card, who's a uh, really a, kind of a big deal sci- sci-fi author, um, but also a Mormon, a faithful Mormon. And uh, and are Mormons uh, King James only, or do they is that their authorized version? Anyhow, um, a lot of a lot of this. It's it features great '80s mullets and then like these men, blonde blonde Jesus, <laughs> talking speaking in King James. Um, it's um, it, it the, the whole thing feels it felt very 1980s. It felt like watching Transformers or GI Joe, except you have Pontius Pilate <laughs> instead of GI Joe. Um, and uh, this this had the effect of uh, my 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 children watched this so much. It had the effect of. Um, they memorized uh, key passages of the Ascension at the very end in King James when they were quite young. Uh, and and I noticed this one day. I was in another room, and I hear around the corner, 
uh, a child's voice, just absentmindedly playing with Legos, reciting, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And um, <laughs> that's kind of become a fun story we like to tell. And as a result, it's had the uh, unintentional salutary um, uh, effect of, of having me memorize that in King James. Now that's from the, uh, the Acts account. I believe that's verse 11, the end yes. of the Acts account, where um, the apostles are upbraided by the... Um, by the men in white to, to, to stop staring into the sky. Um, but uh, so I guess that's just, that's kind of a, a fun thing that I always think about when I, when, when the Ascension comes around. Um, and I, I now have that kind of that, that passage in my head um, from Acts. Um, it used to be, I used to get sad at the Ascension because it, I always felt like it was the end of something. I felt like it was the end of a walk with Jesus um, start, starting uh, in December at Christmas through Epiphany, um, the, uh, through the season of Epiphany as we see his signs and miracles, um, and likewise into, into Lent and then Holy Week, and then through Easter we see his, his, his resurrection and his resurrection appearances. And then um, I guess I sort of felt like he was gone. And um, I, I think you have... Uh, you had some good words for us as to why um, this, this is not at all how we should think about and pray about and how, how we should meditate on the Ascension at all. Um, let me see. I had a couple of other things written down around the Ascension. Um, yeah, so I, it's interesting. Um, where does Jesus go? Uh, I, I think about that when he, when he ascends. Um, it says he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and uh, and that's not a literal place. It's a metaphor for the seat of honor, right? That he's re he's 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 returned back home, in some sense. Um, I think of uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, that Bilbo Baggins, when he comes back. Well, actually, from the Hobbit, he he calls. Do you remember what he titles his book? There and back again, right? There and back again, a Hobbit's tale. Um, and I, I think that's kind of, kind of uh, could have been Jesus, uh, uh, the word, the word incarnate's tale. Baron <clears throat> sure, sure. But, but yeah, and, and, yeah, I guess that's, that's absolutely but he right. Doesn't, he doesn't return to the father the same way he left. Right, right. Um, he returns to the throne of thrones with his full humanity. Right, right. Yes. So Jesus is ruling over all the universe in his human body. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an ill-fitting suit that he stepped into. Like, um, do you remember Men in Black? Yes. Um, the, the villain. Um, uh, so uh, they're like these Lee bug Jones. people that would take on the skin of, yeah. of people. Yeah, and it just didn't fit right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty right. grotesque. So yeah. Remember, uh, Will Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are interviewing this farm wife whose husband's been abducted by an alien who destroyed him, and uses his skin to blend in with humans. And when they interview her, she says. It was like he was wearing wearing Edgar like a suit, an Edgar suit, <laughs> right? Jesus isn't wearing an Edgar suit, right? He did not adopt humanity that way. It's not something he unzipped and steps out of once his mission here on Earth is accomplished. Um, but is, but in his incarnation, in be, being born a in, in, as a baby, uh, he did uh, give up much of. Uh, he left behind it. Um, 
a great yeah. deal to become a man. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, as we sing in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? Yeah. Right? So, so, so we, we, he, didn't, he didn't lose his divinity. You can't separate these natures. Right. Um, but uh, but, but he, he left behind uh, much of just kind of the kind of the cosmic power of like to become a man. Right. So, so this is what's called the communication of attributes, which I think, think we touched upon earlier. And it's fairly complex and there's actually disagreement in Christendom. Um, you, so every, I think all branches of Christendom agree that the divine nature laid some glory aside, laid mm -hmm. aside some divine attributes, omniscience, omnipresence um, in becoming incarnate. Um, and yet the divine nature is fully present in the incarnate word. So the word that spoke all things into being in the beginning was the word. That very word is Jesus Christ. Um, but now you have one person, um, the word, two natures, fully God, fully man, fully divine, fully human. And yet now that full humanity in is now in the Godhead. Um, mm -hmm. So this is interesting. There's a, there's a hymn that's often sung uh, on Ascension, See the Conqueror Mount in Triumph. And I'll, I, will, I will make sure that we play it here in the recording. And the last verse, um, we, we sing this. Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. So Jesus' ascension is, uh, is the final act, right? The new Adam who's knitting back together all that Adam in the garden had ripped apart and destroyed as he invited sin and death into the world. Um, Adam was tempted by Satan and fell for it. Jesus was tempted by Satan but refused all that he was offered. Right? Adam brought death into a deathless world. Jesus brought life to the dead. Uh, the fruit of Adam's tree in the garden was sin, pain, and death. Um, but Jesus himself is the sweet fruit um, that hung on that most lovely tree, the cross, which is our tree of life. Um, Adam willingly fell from grace, but Jesus willingly lays himself down as a sacrifice for all of us. Um, so Jesus is the new Adam, the true and final Adam, and for his last act, um, he, the true Adam, is now God, ascended with God. The man, the ultimate man, is with God. Um, and so in that way, the ascension of our Lord is a down payment on, on our ascension one day, right? Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. Um, there's almost like a... Um, like a gravity, an inverse gravity. And we think of gravity as pulling us down in our directionality. But because humanity is raised on high with Jesus, there's a gravity that will be pulling um, the faithful up. <laughs> uh, an anti-gravity, right? Um, so I think I think that's lovely. Um, it, we, we read recently in John, a couple of weeks back, that um, he must go to the Father so he can prepare a place for us. Um, in my Father's house are many rooms, right? Well... He's there now. <laughs> the place is ready. Um, so it's a down payment in our resurrection. So yes, those are those are kind of my thoughts.
Good stuff. And I'm glad you mentioned the second Adam part. You know, this is that's language Paul uses, right? Yes. Uh, say say that again. I'm sorry. I, I had to run to close the door. Daphne was yeah. messing with my. For, um, I'm me. glad you used the language of of the second Adam or the last Adam, because um, this is language Paul uses, right? Yeah. Philippians. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's and and so it's that's worth uh, exploring, and a lot of the stuff I've read um, highlights that. Yeah. Yeah. Any um any any other thoughts before? Before we move let's, on to our theology segment, let's move on to the theology segment. So um, we've had uh, a lot of great uh, listener feedback over uh, over the weeks, and um, recently we had a, a very perceptive listener have noticed that we uh, we often refer to the church fathers, um, and uh, and this listener had a thoughtful question, not not critically like what the heck is up with all this uh, church father stuff, but genuine curiosity: is this an Anglican distinctive? Um, should should we focus more on the fathers as American Christians? Um, and uh, that you uh, you were intrigued by that that question and that thought, Christopher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So um, our our faith. Um, yeah. So the, the feedback was that you know they noticed that we talk about this a lot and. Um, for me, it's kind of self-evident. Uh, as as uh, I've entered into this faith, I was you know I was baptized and and raised in the church, and 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 you have people who nurture you in faith, and um, our our faith is one that's passed on, and um, of course we we know that um, these gospels weren't written down; that they were in oral tradition for some time before they bothered to actually write them down. And it took a while to assemble the scriptures. So, like the first generations of 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 the church, uh, I mean, this was uh, we didn't just have you know. There's no sense of sola scriptura. There wasn't a sense that like, um, like the faith was passed on from one person to another. And so, our we have all these spiritual um, ascendants. These these people um, who we have relied on to 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 pass the faith on faithfully from generation to generation. Uh, when I took my ordinal vows, um, I had to vow to faithfully pass on what I have received. And, and in that sense, um, the, the faith is, the faith is apostolic in a couple of ways. One in, in that, um, the, you know, the literal meaning of apostolic, uh, is, 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 or apostle would be a sent one, a person who's sent out. So of course, apostolic were sent out into the world, um, to, with, with on mission with the good news, but, 
Uh, another meaning would be to pass on the faith, um, just uh, familially um, to, to each generation, generation to generation. And this has been, um, I mean, certainly that was present in Judaism and then in Christianity, the sense of in being inheritors of this great thing. And so, uh, you know, as Anglicans and people maybe who are Roman Catholics or Orthodox uh, sense this a little bit more keenly than others, the sense of of, of being these, this inheritor of a, uh, we actually capitalize it, of a great tradition, the great tradition um, that we are inheritors yeah. of. And, and so we look to the great tradition for wisdom um, that, that um, and, and uh, there are some interesting, I think, deviations from Orthodox Christianity that are the result of what we call chronological snobbery, this sense of, of, um, of us, uh, like, what do we need our ancestors for? Um, you know, we, we, everything's been leading up to us. Uh, we, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to believe that we somehow are wiser and, and don't need the wisdom of, of our elders. Um, that in fact, uh, we are absolutely formed by those who came before us. And that's not to say that we uncritically, um, take, Everything that that are the you know that the church fathers um, say. So, I guess two obvious examples would be like or Origen and Tertullian or Tertullian um, uh, are um, people who are are amazing teachers in the church, and we read a great deal of of what they wrote and and learn from it, um, even while uh, acknowledging that later in their life uh, that, that they were removed. Um, from the church um, for yeah both both took strange turns didn't Origen um, castrate himself yes <laughs> I believe that's true but yes no he did he did yeah <laughs> um, he became a eunuch I took the um, the Bible quite literally when it talked about becoming kind of a eunuch for the kingdom I don't remember what where that comes from but like yeah he castrated himself and uh, for years that kept him from being ordained a priest um, uh, interestingly so. I guess I'm saying we, we don't uncritically read them, but um, there's a great deal of wisdom in, in the church fathers uh, and, and and the sense of we are inheritors of this thing and we want to faithfully pass on what we have received. And so uh, we don't want to look to any golden century as being kind of above the rest of, of church history. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we, we inherit the whole thing and we don't look at it uncritically, um, but we do want to look at the whole thing and, and, and glean the wisdom uh, from uh, that th- th- we have inherited, and um, I mean, so so the church church fathers, like in the third and fourth century, um, do things with scripture that that we are very uncomfortable doing these days, and that's looking at it allegorically. Right. <laughs> um, you see them looking, uh, and and that's not rejecting the literal um, meaning of scripture. Uh, but like the the parables, uh, the parable of um, the Good Samaritan, uh, is it Origen who would ex- explain it not only literally but also say, okay, now also in addition we see um, you know the the he puts him on the donkey that's the cross and the coins he leaves are like the the, the father and the spirit, <laughs> so I mean they just kind of you know insert allegorical elements that that I'm more uncomfortable doing. Uh, yeah, yeah, but um, I had further thoughts, but I'm sure as soon as like I kind of paused and went because eh, I wanted to like there's something that was at the tip of my tongue but isn't coming. I'm sure once you start talking, I'll jump in and interrupt. So so I'll it's let your, you. It's your great gift. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, I, I had just a couple things written down. 
Um, so we have a couple of moving uh, images in both in Hebrews and in Revelation of the church as being um, something much more vast and cosmic than the visible body of gathered believers in any particular generation. And so in Hebrews, we read, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Uh, uh, St. John the Divine, in his vision in Revelation, um, he, he sees saints and martyrs um, in white robes under the altar, which how massive must that altar be, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he asks uh, his guide, he, who are they? And he says, you know. Um, they are those who've been uh, whose lamb, whose robes are washed white in the blood of the lamb. Mm. Um, so, so there's this uh, sense that we get in scripture that that the church is is not the visible body of believers, but um, the body of the faithful throughout space and time. It's mm. more cosmic. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what's the what's the the memeable um, phrase from? Uh, uh, from the, oh my, my gosh, I'm having an aphasic moment, so I can't even make the reference properly. <laughs> oh, the flat circle, uh, Matthew McConaughey's character in that one movie. That's how, that's how we now talk about movies. Inter that one movie. Interstellar? Interstellar, yes. Time is a flat circle. That's right. Um, so yeah, this is actually what the church is, right? And, um, I, I once recently talked to, uh, someone who's in seminary who, their uh, their professor had them do something interesting. They said, "Draw what draw what's happening at communion," and and the exercise was meant to draw people out to to think: Are you drawing in the um, the great cloud of witnesses that are also present as we uh, we commune not only with our Lord but with um, with the, the the full church? Um, so uh, this is sometimes in the, as Americans, this is um, a view that we kind of set aside or we forget because. We sort of have an implicit restorationist view, which is that there were there was the age of the apostles in Acts, and then the church rather quickly fell into apostasy, um, and then there were there were bad popes who um, uh, taught uh, strange heretical things, and then in the 19th century there were American Baptists that recovered the apostolic faith, and thank goodness we have that now. Um, and th I didn't come up with this observation. I, I came across this somewhere else, which is if you have a low view of the church, of the visible church, um, it's actually probably a low view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because remember um, um, the Lord's promise in Matthew's ascension, um, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, uh, and we see with uh, with Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that God um, God will preserve that thing that he has instituted, mm -hmm. um, which is his church. And so if we believe that, <laughs> that God will do what he has promised to preserve and care and provide for his church, that we can't say that there are whole centuries of the church that they're just total black holes, right? Um, there, there are eras of re reform that we're grateful for and we praise God for, um, but we don't we don't chop out a thousand years or whatever. And so um, as for the reasons that you said, uh, the, the church fathers are are just giants because this is before there's even a canon. Right. These are the um, the people that are praying and in, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to kind of work out the full implications of the apostolic faith. Um, and we think about the Nicene fathers. Right. St. Nick, St. Nicholas, who uh, who does he punch in the face <laughs> and is sort of kicked out of the council? Uh, is it, uh, this is, this isn't a great story if I can't remember the name. <laughs> it's the uh, name that like, I keep forgetting. It's yes. probably the biggest, biggest heresy in all of Christianity. It was why Nicaea was formed. Um, 
It and was an Arius. It was it was Arius, wasn't it? It was Arius. <laughs> I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. And Arianism, <laughs> like for whatever reason, that Arianism has been something that a word that just does not come to me when. Right. Yeah. I believe so, it was Arius. So giants um, that are that are responsible that the Holy Spirit worked through to preserve and form His Church, and um, and that is why. We should have a high view of the fathers and uh, and and read them. And like you said, Christopher, the fathers don't speak univocally. There there are some quirky people and genuine weirdos and people who apostatize at the end of their life, like Tertullian or Origen, um, and they they disagree on different things. Which, well, I mean, how human, right? <laughs> the church now disagrees, um, and and yet we we stumble on, upheld by the power of the Holy Spirit. So. I hear delightful, not delightful. I hear screams of agony coming from your house. I just want to. That's I, yeah. I wasn't actually trying to tattle on you um, and say that's not coming from my house, um, <laughs> but that's kind of how it sounds. Uh, I, I must confess myself having uh, times in my life where um, I've looked to one golden age, to just the reformers, um, right? It, it, at, kind of at the cost of looking to the wisdom of of the fathers, and and I want to repent of that. Um, and I love your vision of what's happening at communion. Um, the one thing you didn't mention, you said, you know, the church throughout time and space, uh, but also I think the heavens, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, we have this beautiful vision in Isaiah six um, and that's where the Sanctus comes from, right? Yes. Um, so in the middle of our communion liturgy, we have holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Th those words come from Isaiah chapter six when, when he gets a vision of heaven, of the the glory of God is so uh, blindingly bright that these angels with six wings have to use two to cover their eyes and two to cover their feet and two only two of the six wings do they use to fly because of the glory of God they have to sh like shade themselves from uh, and 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 in heaven we see this song holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of His glory. And so during our communion liturgy, um, he heaven and earth and, and the church throughout all time and space um, proclaims the glory of God. It's beautiful. Amen. All right, man. Um, let's, do, uh, let's do a brief culture segment. Let's do it. So uh, you and I both love a, uh, a quirky, lovely, unique filmmaker by the name of Wes Anderson. And uh, last night, my wife and I revisited his 2012 uh, movie, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, 
and uh, and I had you you and I had actually started it late one night uh, years ago, and I had never I, I fell asleep, and I had for whatever reason never never returned to it. Um, I was just uh, renewed again um, in my uh, amazement that uh, that such a unique, um, uh, fresh uh, filmmaker even exists when mm-hmm. everything kind of marvelized and Disneyized in kind of the last the last decade. Um, so I just had I just had a, a couple of thoughts on Wes Anderson and you uh, you uh, you I think are even even a um, a more reliable Wes Anderson devotee, um, but uh, but uh, Moonrise Kingdom very briefly is a the story it takes place in 1965, um, and uh, it's this may sound all goofy if you've never seen a Wes Anderson film, um, it's very stylized <laughs> often called called like a, a dollhouse style. Um, but in 1965, there's this island off the coast um, of, uh, I don't know, Rhode Island, Maine, something uh, in New England. And uh, there's a Boy Scout camp there. They're called Khaki Scouts there, so as to not be, uh, I guess, copyright violation or whatever. <laughs> Boy Scouts. Back in the heyday of Boy Scouts, when your Boy Scout camps would have hundreds of kids. Um, and uh, and on this island as well is this wealthy home on the other side of the island with with uh Two lawyers, uh, Bill Murray and uh, uh, what's her name? Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand. Yeah. Um, listener, as you can tell, this is how I talk about movies. What's her name and what's his name? That person, that one guy. <laughs> this is the old manification of Kirk Haberman. And uh, and they have a daughter who's um, kind of uh, a bit of a black sheep. Um, she doesn't kind of talk to her family. I don't know about black mm-hmm. sheep. I mean, she's so, she's like what eleven, twelve. So she she's, she's a maybe brilliant. a misfit. She's a misfit, yeah, maybe kind of she's kind of not brilliant. doesn't trying to learn how to deal with with just adolescent emotions. Yes, and uh, and she is part of this play at the at the church on the island, Saint Jack's Church, which is just so great, right? Saint Jack's Church, um, which is just so obviously a, a, an Episcopal church, even from the style of the. Um, of the pews to the surpluses, but but anyway, uh, she's in this play, this Benjamin Britten play, and uh, the Boy Scouts are there to to see it, and uh, it, this misfit Boy Scout, who we learn later, we learn is uh, adopted, and his foster parents kind of don't want him anymore, um, sees her immediately, falls in love, goes down to the dressing room, points at her, you, what's your name? And they they just have kind of this immediate unspoken connection, and they they become pen pals, um, him from his Boy Scout camp, her from her home on the other side of the island, and they write these series of letters that culminates in this plan to run away together, and and hike across the island, and um, and this, and are they twelve? Uh, I I I think they're distinctly pre adolescent, which uh, yes. which, which I insist, really- which is really key, yes. Yes, um, uh, and th- and that's kind of uh, the the point is this. Uh, Wes Anderson has this almost Edenic um, yearning for um, human love. Year. Yeah, for human love and human relation relations untarnished by uh, the sins of lust and greed, in particular. And um, and at his best, he really does cast an Edenic vision of of um, human interaction. 
So uh, as they're walking across this island in, in basically, you know, kind of a New England paradise, um, a 12-year-old Adam and Eve, um, kind of, you know, in a pre-lust way, uh, they, fall, they fall in love. And, um, and it's a beautiful thing. You know, one, one thing that was much discussed in 2012, 2013, when it came out, was the marriage ceremony, how touching that was. And many adults sort of finding themselves um, crying, frankly. Do you remember uh, who officiates what, uh, the actor? Jason Schwartzman. It was Jason Schwartzman. Yes, always a go-to in Wes Anderson films. Yes. Who officiates. And he even, he, he uh, I mean, it's just a downright Christian moment when he, uh, they, they sort of glibly says, yeah, they, he asks them, um, are you prepared? Do you understand what you're asking me to do? Um, this is not, this is not, not a, not a religiously valid nor legally valid marriage ceremony, but, but otherwise you're in the presence of friends and witnesses saying that you're, um, married in your hearts. Do you realize what you're saying and the gravity of what you're doing? And they both glibly say yes. And he said, no, no, no. You go stand over there by that trampoline and talk for five minutes and then come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's this funny juxtaposition of, of seriousness and also that they're at a camp. So go stand by the trampoline, you know, and they're like chewing gum. He's like, spit out your gum. Come on. Spit out your gum. <laughs> but demanding that they, uh, that they understand the gravity of what they're asking to enter into. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a real gravity at the the wedding that's not a wedding, but is all but is a wedding in a way that many adult modern weddings aren't weddings that don't have a sense of moral um, gravity and uh, and and um, a sense of the depths and uniqueness of human love. Um, it, it also uh, cast me back to kind of the the power of adolescent and pre-adolescent affections. As a, as a parent whose children are going to be entering adolescence here faster than I realize, um, mm. to never poo-poo what they feel and to remember how strong, how strongly a 12-year-old can feel things. So, yeah, I love the uh, the moral vision of Wes Anderson. I love his aesthetic. Um, some people are put off by the dollhouse um, effect, but um, I know we have a hard, you have a hard out, Christopher. Um, yeah, do you have can... any, any kind of Wes Anderson thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Moonrising Kingdom is one of my favorite movies of all time, and and I I always argue with myself about whether it's my favorite uh, Wes Anderson movie or not. I I remember walking in uh, to someone watching Rushmore, uh, Wes Anderson's second film. So good, so good. I remember walking in and not knowing. I, I was a college freshman. I didn't know who Wes Anderson was. I didn't know what this was. All I knew, I was transfixed. I. I was amazed, and and so I credit Wes Anderson with really interesting me in in film, not just as just movies as entertainment, but just uh, the, the the art of, of filmmaking. Uh, because uh, he is such a good collaborator, his soundtracks are always amazing, uh, and and that's not him; that's collaboration. Like he is a guy who who kind of pairs um, sound to, to film, uh, mm-hmm. and. And uh, so, so Rushmore is amazing. Bottle Rocket is amazing. Uh, he has some some quirky ones that I know are off putting for some people. A lot of people like Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, which is great. It's 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 a great movie. It. Um, 
And it's interesting, Ray Fiennes, the character he plays, some see as somehow autobiographical. Here's a man born out of time and how yeah. Wes Anderson seems wistful and kind of wishing that he were born maybe 30 years. Like just the aesthetic and, and the, 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 some of the period stuff in his movies. Like it's not really clear what, what year these take place because everything seems so much older. Um, like Royal Tenenbaums, like what year is that supposed to take place? Like the cars are old, the styles are old. Um, and uh, so Moonrise Kingdom, I think, is, is his most underappreciated and most misunderstood film. And I think a lot of people don't like um, – like there is an almost nude scene on the beach with these kind of adolescents. Like she strips down to her, her bra and underwear. Yep. And um, they don't understand that it's like this this Edenic. Like it's, a, it's not like this weird kind of like um, adolescent sex scene. Instead, it's untouched by lust. It really it's is innocence. It's innocence. Yeah. It's absolute innocence. It's a return to Eden. Like they're off, and so like them kind of stripping down is 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 like metaphorically a return to Eden. Like when Adam and Eve yeah. were unt- untouched by sin and 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 were naked and 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 um, were not ashamed. And so it's this beautiful story of these two misfits um, who connect, like not because probably they're they're super relationally. Uh, like it's it's just funny how how they, they relate to each other. Like he's this khaki scout, so in the, in the hours after they've kind of um, run away together, he's like got them sucking on rocks to to because like he read in a book that sucking on rocks makes you less thirsty. And yep. uh, <laughs> I mean it's, it's so these misfits who find uh, acceptance in each other it, that's that's beautiful. Um, and of course the whole Wes Anderson aesthetic. The the music is perfect in the film. This Benjamin Britten. Um, uh, the way it builds um, is is really amazing. Uh, the the color palette and and I like kind of the the frenetic uh, final act of the movie it reminds me of his movie Fantastic Mr. Fox and how um, each act kind of builds up to this frenetic finish, um, kind of this almost chase and, and celebration. Uh, it's it's a beautiful movie that uh, uh, you know some of his movies are really quirky and funny and this one definitely has humor, uh, but but it's very soulful. Um, you see Bruce Willis playing this very sad man, um, and you see kind of this unhappiness of the parents and and this girl who doesn't know what to do with her feelings, so she just like cuts things up, um, and uh, and her parents like don't know how to deal with that, and 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 the system, the state doesn't know how to deal with that. Like there's a character named Social Services, who, you know, is this faceless, nameless um, kind of uh, yeah. So oh, when Tilda Swinton wants to play an ice queen, oh, can she ever? <laughs> So that has to conclude my thoughts because I am out of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Great stuff, Christopher. Let's end in prayer. Let's do it. Would you lead the prayers this week? My pleasure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended into heaven, may our hearts and minds also there ascend and with him continually dwell, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, 
and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Thanks, next, week. next week. Man. Next week. Oh, clap your hands, oh.